Well, if I haven't introduced myself to you in person, my name is Scott. I'm another of the pastors here at Artisan Church. And I'd like to start out this message by telling you a little bit story, a little story about a time in my life where I was kind of experiencing uh, an unsettled feeling. It was about four and a half years ago, and um, the, the biggest thing in my mind at that time, as you might guess if you know that my son Abel is four years old at the end of this month, the biggest thing on my mind was that Tracy was pregnant. My wife, Tracy, was pregnant with our first child. And if you've ever been, well, I can only speak for the, the expectant dads, but I imagine that the feeling, if, if nothing else, is, is more dramatic if you're an expecting mother. If you've ever been in that situation, you know that you are waiting and counting the days, literally counting the days before that baby will be born. By the way, it's an estimated due date, ladies. Do not focus on that date. <laughs> because if he came out, say, two weeks late, you might be very disappointed. <laughs> just, a, just a hunch. Um, but that was, the, that was the biggest thing in my mind. I'm waiting for my son to be born, and I know he's coming, but he's just not here yet. In a similar vein, but less dramatically, I was in my last year of seminary. I went to seminary at Northeastern Seminary at, at Roberts Wesleyan College, and I was in the last year of a very long 92-credit-hour master's degree, and I was ready to be done. And I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. May 15th, 2005, I think it was. I, could, I had the date on my calendar. But boy, did I have a lot of reading to do between that day and when I graduated. So I could see that one coming down too. But it wasn't here just yet. I was working two jobs. I was working as a pastor, sort of part-time, and I was working as a barista uh, at Starry Nights Cafe, part-time. And I could, sort of in my mind's eye, picture a day when I could work just one of those jobs, the one that was more important to me. But I knew for a fact that I could not do that just yet, because our finances were pretty tight at that point. Um, not like I'm swimming in money now, but... Uh, at that point, we were definitely really tight financially, and I could not quit my cafe job yet. As I said, I dreamed about it, but I couldn't quite do it just yet. And in the job that was my passion, that was being a pastor, I was, I was working with uh, Jason and uh, Mike at the time as well, pastoring one of the communities that that was part of the merge that made Artisan Church happen. The brief history, there were two churches, and then in January of 05, there was one church. This was when there were still two, and, and uh, things were really, really touch and go. We, were not, we didn't have a lot of people there, and it was, kind of, it was a great community, and I loved it. But I could see that it was a little bit tenuous. And so we had begun talks with uh, Pastor Brian, who was pastoring the other church, to, to begin the process of merging the two churches so that we would, we would be kind of a stronger whole. And I saw that date coming down the pike as well, 
but it was still kind of out of reach. So you get, you get the feeling that I had at that time in my life about four and a half years ago. Everything in my life seemed like it was just beyond arm's reach. I could see peace and freedom <laughs> and fatherhood and stability in the future. But I, it wasn't there yet, and I was so frustrated all the time. Have you ever had a time in your life where, where things were kind of not quite there for you yet? I see some people nodding. Maybe you're at a time like that right now. If you're a student, I imagine you have that in your mind. If, you, if you're expecting a baby, I, I know that you have that in your mind. If you're trying to shake loose your extra job, I know you have that in your mind. And there may be very many other types of things that are causing you to have that in your mind. Let me ask you, you don't have to answer necessarily, but rhetorically speaking, what does that do for your demeanor? Does that make you happy? Do you want to jump up and down with joy? How does that affect your spiritual life? Do you feel wonderfully settled and confident in your faith when your life is in flux? Think about those questions for a little bit, and I, I promise to come back to them. But I want to take a minute now and introduce this new series that we start today. We've just finished up the One Prayer series last week, and today we start a new one called Philippians, colon, Joy on Purpose. Uh, if you're new to Artisan, and maybe if you've been around but never picked up on this, we choose our series in a few different ways. One way that we do it is we find a topic that we think might be meaningful to you, our congregation, and we, we collect biblical texts, texts around that topic that will hopefully speak into your lives. So if you were here um, a few months back for our Failed Christians series, that was very topical. Uh, the second way that we choose our, our series and the, the biblical content for them is to use what's called the lectionary. And you may have heard us talk about this before. The lectionary is a collection of Bible texts that uh, are arranged according to the Christian calendar. And what's really cool about the lectionary is it keeps you looking at the Bible passages that are pertinent to the time of year. So around Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter, we use the lectionary. And there are thousands of churches all around the world who use these same texts as us. When we're doing the lectionary, we are kind of hearing one voice, the same voice that other churches are hearing, and that's pretty cool. And the third way that we choose our topics and our, our, our sermon texts is to just choose a book of the Bible and to go right through it from beginning to end. And that's what we're doing starting tonight with the book of Philippians. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that I asked you to read this book during the week, and it went in the e-news as well. So I know that all of you have read the entire book of Philippians this past week, right? Huh? Uh, I see one hand. <laughs> That's okay. It's a short book. You can read it, but do catch up with it. It's just four chapters, and I'll be speaking today, and uh, Brian next week, Jason the following week, and Anna Valeria Palo is going to close our series on the fourth week with chapter 4. 
So we start this new series today, and part of my job tonight, in addition to hopefully saying something that will be meaningful to you and will connect to your spirit, uh, is to put this book of Philippians in its proper context. Now, I know that, that might, you might be going, oh, here comes the boring academic stuff. He's going to tell us what he learned in seminary. <laughs> um, I apologize, kind of, but not really because I'm a firm believer that context is everything when you look at the Bible. If you want to get something spiritually useful out of a Bible text, I would suggest to you that it's very helpful to know when it was written and why and by whom and all those details. So I, I promise I won't take too long with this, but I do want to set this in its context so that over the next four weeks, you will know what it is that you're hearing from, okay? So what is the book of Philippians? The book of Philippians is very simply a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was probably the driving human force in the creation of the early Christian church. He started churches all over the known world, all around the Mediterranean basin. And one of the churches that he started was in Philippi, which is it's in what we now know as Greece. It's Macedonia. So you may see references in the book of Acts, which tells the story of that early church's formation. You may see references in the book of Acts, specifically in chapter 16, to Paul going to Macedonia. He has this dream on one of his journeys where there's a Macedonian person who says, come help us. And Paul changes his plans and goes to Macedonia, sensing the call of the Holy Spirit. And he starts a church there. Now, normally what Paul would do is he would go to the synagogue, but there was no synagogue in Philippi. So instead, he went to the river. <laughs> when there's no church, you go to the water. That's the rule. Uh, but there was a place of prayer that was organized by the local people down there. And you may have heard the term Lydia, the name Lydia from the book of Acts. Lydia was the... Uh, She's kind of referred to as an apostle. So it's the one that you tend to avoid if you don't believe that women should be pastors. You don't mention Lydia. Um, but we mention Lydia. Uh, she was the first European convert. She was a wealthy textiles dealer. And she was kind of the, the, the start of this Philippian church. So I actually have a map for you and a laser pointer because I, I want you to know where this happened. So I'm going to turn around here. So right here is Israel, modern-day Israel, and there's Jerusalem. That's where the action was happening. And Macedonia is all the way right up in here, and Philippi is just north of that little island right there. I have a shaky hand. So that's where Philippi was, and now you can find it on a map if you ever need a final Jeopardy answer or something like that. So... Why did Paul write this letter to the Philippians? Well, a lot of times when Paul wrote a letter to a church, it was to pound on them because they were doing something wrong. Their theology was terrible. They were not getting along with each other. They were falling into traps. That's not quite the case with the book of Philippians. He's much gentler and friendlier in this book. You get a kinder, gentler Paul in the book of Philippians. He's very warm. You might almost think that he likes these people. Um, and I, liked, I like that. It kind of fits with us because I, 
we're, we're by no means a perfect church, but I, I don't see us having the kind of theological crises that some churches may have had that I've been part of. And, and there's, you know, we don't all get along 100%, but we get along pretty well here. So I could imagine us being sort of like the Philippian church. So if he's not writing to tear them a new one, what is he writing for? Well, there were some beginnings of disunity, and he's, he's encouraging them in this letter, no, you need to be of one spirit, you should be unified. Um, they were falling a little bit into legalism, so in chapter 3, he starts going on his anti-legalism rant, like you see in Galatians and in some other places. But one of the reasons that he wrote, and it's the one that we're focusing on in this series, was to encourage the Philippian church to be joyful. And the word joy or the verb rejoice occurs in this book, I think about 16 times in four rather short chapters. You may actually know by heart, depending on your, your origin of faith, uh, one of the verses that he gets to in chapter 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. How many sang that song? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> if you did not grow up in Sunday school, lucky you. <laughs> you don't know that song. <laughs> um, actually, he gets to it in chapter 3. It's like he's closing the letter. If you, I don't know if you noticed this when you read it this week. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, I say to you, rejoice. And then he spends the rest of the chapter talking about legalism. And then he comes back to it in chapter 4 and says, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. It's kind of like when, I mean, not an artisan, but sometimes you're hearing a sermon and the pastor is bringing it home and you start gathering your stuff up, you're folding your bulletin and putting your, oh, wait. <laughs> I guess he's not done just yet. There's another rabbit trail I've got to endure. Um, Paul was human, just like pastors are human. And uh, so he gets to this climactic statement in, in chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. But as he's laying the groundwork for this concept, here in chapter 1, which is what I want to look at today, he has this other theme that he's sort of weaving into it. And I call it the not yet theme. And it really resonated with me as I read it because it made me think of my life about four and a half years ago when everything was just out of reach. Throughout this first chapter, Paul is writing to them and saying all kinds of stuff like, if I can do such and such, or when something finally happens, then... So let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. Um, if you are looking at the Bibles underneath your seat, Philippians is kind of really near the back. You don't have to use that if you don't want because it will be on the screen. Um, but in chapter 1, verse 6, here's the first example. Paul says, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. What do you read here? That there's a work that God has started and it's not quite yet finished. And he says, by the day of Jesus Christ. What's that? Well, I don't know, but it's not yet. 
So this good work that God is starting is not finished yet. That's the first example. Flip ahead a couple of verses. You probably don't even have to turn the page to verse 10. And he's kind of going along, and, and you catch him in the middle of a sentence here in verse 10. He says, I want to help you to determine what is best so that, again, on the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Again, we have this, message, uh, this reference to the day of Christ, whenever that's going to be. And you also have that wonderful metaphor of a harvest. When do you harvest crops? In the fall. When do you plant crops? In the spring. So what happens in the summer? You wait. <laughs> you wait for those crops to grow. And this harvest of righteousness is in the ground. And it's raining and it's sunny, but it's not grown yet. I love that. Well, I don't. It's kind of annoying, but <laughs> that's what Paul is saying. Jump ahead to verse 20. He says, So that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Did I mention what, where Paul was when he wrote this letter? I don't think I did. He was in prison. Okay? So when I come to you again, first of all, that's in the future. That's a when. And actually, it's kind of an if, because there's no guarantee Paul's getting out of that prison. You kind of see that again in the next verse. He says, whether I come and see you or I'm absent and I only hear about you. And I'm not giving you much of the context of what he's talking about here, but that's okay. I just want to throw these phrases out at you to give you this sense of not yet. And here's the most extreme example of that in verse 20. In verse 20, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope, already kind of future tense types of things, that Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. So forget getting out of prison and going to see the Philippians. Paul's not even sure he's going to make it out alive. Are you sensing this undercurrent of unrest and not yet and not being sure of what's the, what the future holds? Is that resonating with you at all the way it resonated with me and what might be going on with your life similar to what was going on in my life? Throughout this, all this unrest and uncertainty, he says in verse 18, what I think is a really powerful verse. He says, I will continue to rejoice. Notice this is not a passive, I will continue to have joy. I will be happy. He's saying, I will rejoice in spite of all the circumstances. In spite of the fact that I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. I don't know if I'm ever going to see anybody again. I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this place alive. I will continue to rejoice. Can I be a goofy pastor and ask you to say that with me? Too late. I'm going to. I will continue to rejoice. So what's Paul's secret? Because I think back to that time in my life when I was unsure and 
when things were just out of reach and, and everything was still unsettled, and I was not rejoicing. I was kind of pissing and moaning. I was sort of complaining a lot. I, I was not a joyful person at that point. So what is Paul's secret? Well, in addition to the hinting at the joy and in addition to weaving this undercurrent of not quite sure, there's a third thread that I think Paul weaves into this little blanket in chapter 1. And that's the thread where he expresses his confidence in the perseverance of the gospel. His faith that the message of Jesus will continue on no matter what happens. Let me read you a couple of these passages. Let's look at them together. Look at verse 12. Paul's saying here that his, the fact that he's in prison has actually been a benefit to the gospel. And I, I didn't write these in my notes, so I'm going to read these off the screen as well. He says, I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me, being in prison, has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. That is cool. He's put in prison. Did I mention why he's in prison? Did he steal something? Did he punch a Roman soldier? No. He was preaching the gospel. (laughs) And he got thrown in prison for it. And yet, he's thrown in prison, and that's actually a benefit to the gospel because he can start preaching to the guards. And when the other Christians in the area, which is, we think, probably Rome, where he's writing from, see that he's okay preaching the gospel, they start preaching the gospel more, and the whole thing prospers and flourishes even more than it was before he was thrown in prison. Look to that next verse, verse 15, and then skip 16 and go to 17. And he's talking about the way that other people are preaching the gospel. He says, Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Some proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. Can you believe what he's suggesting here? That there are people who know he's in prison for preaching the gospel, and they hate him so much that they decide, I'm going to preach the gospel more. Maybe those guards will whip Paul an extra couple of times just by hearing the sound of this message preached by somebody else. And Paul says, that's okay with me. The gospel's being preached. That's what I care about. Can you imagine having that attitude? I can't. (laughs) You know, have have you ever heard a preacher in church or on the street preaching and shouting, and you know he's not in this for the right reasons? He's in this to bring glory to his own name or to advance his own personal cause or to to have a, a vehicle for him to express his hatred of a people group. The gay pride parade goes right by my house every, every summer. 
And every single year, there's some idiot out there with an enormous placard and a megaphone yelling really hateful, spiteful things at people. And I'm like, dude, I'm glad you love Jesus, but I want to come over there and take away your batteries, metaphorically speaking. How can you do that? To have the attitude of Paul, I might say, he's preaching Christ. And as long as somebody's preaching the gospel, that's a good thing. I don't know if I could bring myself to that place. Let's look at verse 20 one more time. This is the verse where he talks about the possibility of him dying. Christ will be exalted now as always, whether by life or by death. Have you ever worried about the fact that you feel like, as a Christian, if you are a Christian, you're supposed to, to, to share the gospel with people, but you feel like you're terrible at it and you're scared of it or you don't want to offend people, and so you just clam up and you think, oh, man, the, the kingdom of God is never going to grow unless I finally just break through my fear and do this. Have you ever kind of worried about that sort of thing? Well, here's the Apostle Paul, maybe the greatest evangelist of history, who essentially almost started the Christian church single-handedly saying, I could live, I could die, Christ will be exalted either way. That's some pretty significant confidence in the perseverance of the gospel. And my suggestion tonight is that the way that Paul can say, I continue to rejoice in the midst of all his uncertainty, is that his joy comes not from his own circumstances, but from his faith in the message of Jesus. When I toss these words out, gospel and message, they're the same thing. Gospel is, comes from the Greek word that means message. And Paul's confidence is in the gospel, the message of Jesus. That it transcends all the things in his life. That's kind of refreshing to me. <laughs> For those times when I'm in a dark place and I'm doubting my faith and I'm not sure whether I can go on believing what I've been taught and what I've believed my whole life, and I'm, sh I'm positive that even though I might, I'm going to be of no use to anybody. When I'm in those dark places, it's refreshing to know that Paul, in a dark place, was able to continue to rejoice because he had confidence that that message of Jesus had such a power that it would persist, it would persevere, no matter what happened to him. So let me ask you, how is your confidence in the gospel message? Are you sure that the message will go on in spite of you and maybe your failings? Are you sure that the gospel will persevere in spite of the fact that you don't have to go two miles away from this building to see people who are suffering and in trouble and no one's helping them, including you? To say nothing of the fact that there are people around the world 
struggling in the wake of horrendous natural disasters. Do you have confidence in light of all those things that the message of Jesus will prevail? I would like to say that if you find yourself having a joy problem, in other words, you can't find any, (laughs) and you're not able to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, if you have a joy problem, it might be because you have a confidence in the gospel problem. That's not to say that's definitely true. That's just the sense I'm getting from chapter 1 of Philippians, that There is a connection between our confidence in the gospel and our ability to be joyful in the midst of our suffering. When we talk about the gospel, it's usually to call people to faith. So if I were to have an altar call here tonight, I might talk about the power of the gospel. Sometimes it's to encourage one another to evangelize, to share the message with other people. We say, the gospel is powerful. You need to get out there and start spreading the word. Both of those ideas, I think, are biblical, and both of them are good. But I think it's pretty rare that we talk about the power of the gospel as a pure, raw, spiritual reality. And I don't want to get too abstract. I don't want to go into the realm of the goofy. But the power of the gospel message is what holds our faith together. It is the core. It's the glue. When I'm in those dark moments that I told you about, the thing that pulls me out, the thing that keeps me going is not the story of the creation of the earth and arguing about whether it happened in seven days or six million years, billion years. That does not charge my batteries. It's not the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery. It's not the story of the early church taking root in Palestine and the descent of the Holy Spirit on the people and the speaking in tongues. All of those things are powerful stories. Don't get me wrong. Those are not the ones that keep me going in my darkest hour. The one that keeps me going in my darkest hour is the story of Jesus. And I cling to that like a board in a shipwreck at my darkest hour. The story of Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. Some days that's all I feel like I got. So I don't have any clever application for you. I'm not going to have you write anything down to do this week. I'm just going to suggest to you the spiritual reality that there is a connection between your confidence in the story of Jesus and your ability to be joyful in the midst of the suffering that you may be experiencing or witnessing.
And so that, so as we close our time in the Word, and I invite you to the next stage of our worship together, which is to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the communion table, I would like to encourage you to do this a little bit differently and take your time a little bit more this week than you might otherwise do. What better way to remind ourselves of the powerful story of Jesus than to go to his table as millions and billions of Christians have done over the centuries to celebrate the bread, which is his body broken for us, and the cup, which contains his blood spilled for us, in that act of remembrance and in partaking of that spiritual food, we can meditate on the power of the gospel message. So when you come, you're welcome to tip, tear a piece of bread off and dip it in either of the cups. We at Artisan have both wine and juice, as you know. Take that, and normally what you probably would do would just be to eat it right there at the table and go back to your seat. I'd like to suggest that maybe this time you dip the bread... Just set it in the palm of your hand. It's going to get a little wet. That's okay. Carry it back to your seat and just sort of silently meditate on that. And we'll have some joyful music playing just so there's a little cognitive dissonance going on. Meditate on his body and blood. And after you've thought on that for a little while, then take it and eat it. If you're a follower of Jesus... If you want to experience the joy that comes with the power of his gospel message, this table is open for you. You don't have to be a member here. You don't have to have ever been here before. It could be your first time doing it, and what a powerful first step of faith that would be. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you're still figuring that out, it's okay. You can sit in your seat and meditate on what's not in your hand. Not yet, maybe not ever. Think on that. Let me pray for us and the table will be open. Our God, we give you thanks for this message of joy. Joy in the face of uncertainty and suffering that Paul, your servant, wrote to the Philippian church, and we can kind of peek over his shoulder and read. Thank you for his example, and we pray that as we come to your table, Lord Jesus, your presence would be real to us. Your Holy Spirit would speak to us, and then in in that act of remembrance, we would be nourished spiritually and receive the confidence that the gospel message will persevere. And Lord Jesus, would you please, from that confidence, give us peace and joy, even though we may not be in a great, happy place in our life. And for this we give you thanks. As we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.